What does it mean to be human? And can human vulnerability help us to understand our own humanity more deeply? Can we learn to live through suffering? Join us today as we answer those questions and more with Dr. Katerina Vesterhorstman, Professor of Theology and Medical Ethics at Franciscan University in Steubenville. I'm Father Dave Pavanka, President of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Welcome to Franciscan University Presents. I'm your host, Father Dave Pavanka, President of Franciscan University of Steubenville. We're talking today about what we can learn from illness and suffering. I'm joined by our panelists, Dr. Regis Martin, Professor of Systematic Theology here at Franciscan University, and Dr. Scott Hahn, the Father Michael Scanlon, Professor of Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization here also at Franciscan University. And we're very pleased to welcome today's guest, Dr. Katerina Vesterhortzman, who is a professor of theology and medical ethics, ethics at Franciscan University of Steubenville in our Gomming campus. It's a great blessing to have you with us there. She has taught and written extensively in her areas of expertise, which include moral and systematic theology, virtue ethics, and the works of Edith Stein. Today we'll discuss her paper, What It Means to Be Human, Anthropological and Ethical Reflections and Navigating Vulnerability and Fragility of Human Existence, during times of illness. Welcome. It's really Thank wonderful you. to have you here. Thank you very much. Maybe just a basic question. Um, what caused you to write the article? So first of all, I should have chosen a better title. <laughs> <laughs> I could have done a better job. So my idea was just to use what it means to be human as the title. But I, but I knew, of course, the readers want to know a little bit what I will be talking about in this article. Yeah. So what made me write the piece, it, it was very personal, to mm. be honest. It was my way of dealing with a time after an accident I had and a time of illness, several months, and with long-lasting effects. And I, I tried to find a way to work academically on this question and also to use it to teach stu students. Mm. I think that's one of the things that, that you do beautiful. We don't go into your, all of your academic credentials, which are long, but you do a beautiful job in this in taking academic, not just, well, academic subjects and topics and actually making it real. So what was that process like for you of just being able to take what you know in, in your intellect and make that relevant to your experience and the experience of the reader? Yeah, so I, I try to find something people can relate to and usually it's a way I can relate to the topic myself. And that helps me to, to find a way of explaining sometimes a little dry academic topics and to fill them with a little bit of more life. And also to use a language that is not so commonly used for questions like this. But sickness and illness and suffering, that's everybody's experience, correct? Perhaps not to the same extent. Okay. I mean, someone who, who gets a cancer diagnosis is in a different situation than someone who has a cold. Yeah. And although we have all the same experience because of our human condition, it makes a huge difference whether um, sickness becomes a part of my life 
or just temporarily I'm sick for a few days. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, suffering, uh, I, I think, can be understood uh, in various ways, but death is sort of a constant. It's a universal uh, defining uh, experience. Nobody gets out alive. And if life is a journey, uh, at the end of the journey, you're dead. But along the way, most of us, I think, will be forced to undergo some pain, some suffering, at least some massive inconvenience. Oddly enough, I was reading your piece uh, at the airport in Newark, New Jersey, which is one of the most hellish settings uh, on the planet. <laughs> I was and there I last was, night. <laughs> oh, gosh, I'm so sorry to hear that. But you look as if you've recovered. I spent four hours in a line waiting to change a flight, uh, and your piece resonated very well with my own uh, travail. So I appreciate the contingency that, that you outlined so well uh, in your text. You know, you introduced something that I think ought to be emphasized from the beginning, and that is illness is the suffering of the body that leads to death. But suffering is often much, much broader, much deeper than just the illness or the physical pain. In fact, I would say most suffering is interior, the suffering of the soul, the suffering of Newark Airport. You know, and, and I think when I read this and I went back and I reread it, I realized how perfectly suited it is because these things can be distinguished, but they're inseparable. The suffering of the soul, but heartbreak, abandonment, betrayal, you know, that sort of thing causes an anguish that goes beyond even four hours of waiting in Newark Airport. And I think that also is an essential part of what the human condition is. Can, and, and Doctor mentioned the word contingency, and that's you spent quite a bit of time just explaining that. So maybe just explain that for us. What do you mean by contingency? So during that time um, when I had this accident, I was working at uh, Freiburg University, and I worked at an ethics center, and we were um, like from from several perspectives, we were working on anthropological and ethic medical ethical questions, and contingency became a topic when I thought about what it means to be human, so what it means for us to be here and to not to be able to control everything. And uh, Thomas Aquinas used it as uh, the third of the five ways to explain, not to prove the existence, but to explain the existence of God, that he's not contingent because he is necessary. In our lives, we have so many maybes. Mm. Maybe I will be born in New Jersey or in California or in Germany. But it could have been different. Mm -hmm. It could have been that my mom just moved right before I was born, or she was displaced, or she was um, something happened to my parents, would have happened to my parents, then I would have been born somewhere else. So many aspects of our lives are not, are, are taken out of, out of our control. Mm -hmm. And so we just have to accept many things we cannot control. And, Right now in, in modern medicine, we find many approaches to try to eliminate this kind of contingencies. For example, uh, sometimes women uh, would schedule a C-section, although they don't need it, just to make sure that their baby is born their on particular that, day. that particular day. Or for example, the, the, the whole issue of physician-assisted suicide for many people is about the, the anxiety to lose control or to, the anxiety I might have to, to endure pain and I, don't, I, I want to make sure that this doesn't happen or that I, I don't have to be cared off or don't have to be, um, don't have to be treated like, like a patient, like a dying patient. Mm -hmm. 
And so people try to eliminate these contingencies, those maybes in our lives, just, just to take control. Because the security helps us. It, it gives us the, the feeling of, of safety, of we know what's going on. But in our lives, and this is why contingency became so important, like something like sickness or accidents or even natural disasters, it's out of our hands. And we have to deal with those situations and conditions. I mean, life, life is so contingent, we can't even guarantee that this program uh, will, will survive. I mean, it may blow up before uh, episode two. We feel Who knows? confident that it well, will. <laughs> I, I'm not so sure. I mean, life is that fragile. It all comes down to whether you think life is a problem that you can solve and you need engineering skills. You're just a machine and you tweak the machine to make it more efficient or life is a mystery. You can't solve the mystery. You have to endure it, and from time to time you marvel at it. But you can't predict or manipulate a mystery. You're inside the mystery. You're not standing apart from it. And people, are so, and people are so anxious. That's why parents try to use PGD to make sure our kids should have like, good genes, right. not to, that, they, that, they doesn't, that they don't have to face any problems with the child, and also that the PGD, child... Just real quick. Oh, so yeah, it's, yeah. it's the, um, the gen, gene testing okay. before implantation. So they sometimes would use uh, IVF to avoid a, a child that would be, ch that would be sick right. or like, would have an impairment. Just to make sure they're on the safe side and their kids wouldn't suffer. In identifying contingency as an essential part of human nature, our human condition, I, I think you've you, you really nailed it. You know, in this sense, that that suffering is an aspect of our contingency, and yet the fear of being out of control actually is an invitation for some people to suffer. That is to lift weights or to diet or to spend a fortune on cosmetics or something like that. And so there is a sense in which people will voluntarily undertake all kinds of deprivation and suffering, but strictly for natural goods that they can contain, that they can control. And I think that's ironic because, you know, upon reflecting on our life experience, you realize that is a diminishing core of human experience. What part of it I can contain and control? Yeah. Okay, in your teens, through sports, your 20s, through a career, and that sort of thing. But age brings that, ne that, that necessary recognition of your frailty and obviously of your mortality. Yeah, I think the, the word that I just prayed through, is, and literally prayed through, I think your article is beautiful, is, is one of surrender. The, it seems like underlying this is this continual invitation to surrender. Would that be accurate? I think it is accurate. However... I experienced many people who would say, it's better to fight. If, if you get a cancer diagnosis, you have to fight to survive. I don't think they're opposed. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perhaps it's, it's right and it, it might be very healthy to fight, but on the other hand, to, to, to trust and to surrender yeah, yeah, yeah. is, yeah, yeah. I think, is a less stressful approach and sometimes you are too exhausted. If you're sick, you're too exhausted, too overwhelmed, too anxious to be yeah, able yeah, to yeah. fight. But you know, oftentimes the art of prudence is knowing when to do one and when to uh, cultivate the other. 
I mean, uh, that great poet Dylan Thomas has that, that line, do not go gentle into that good night, but rage, rage mm -hmm. against the dying of the light. For some, you have to rage fiercely. You fight, you resist the, the onset of the darkness. But for others, they need to surrender serenely, to trust, uh, to, to submit to God's uh, uh, providence. Es he knows best. Especially if you think that there is some kind of a call Mm -hmm. in this Indeed. this sickness or in this illness or in anything that makes you suffer if you if you see that i think then surrender is the right response well i think that's why surrender itself is somewhat ambiguous it's double edged you know on the one hand surrender can be defeatist it can be a resignation mm -hmm. and really just a, a kind of um, giving a, up yeah. giving yeah, up yeah, yeah. yeah but surrendering is begging the question who am i surrendering to right. am i surrendering to the illness or more surrendering to my own mortality and to my creator and to my loved ones. And so I'm not going to fight in a way that is really destructive. Yeah, yeah. Ken, I think I can give an example. So after this accident, I, I was not able to read, for example, because I had, a, I had a fracture and I was not really not doing well. I was not able to read. And, um, but I, I remembered this scripture verse, my yoke is easy. Mm -hmm. And I was surprised because I thought, actually, Lord, your yoke is not so easy. But I realized, for some reason, this yoke was easier than something else. So I didn't know what this other part was. So I was, I was convinced, convinced I wanted to take that yoke because it was easier. And that helped me to surrender but in a dialogical way, mm -hmm. to a thou, and this thou was, was yeah. Christ. Yeah. yeah, I think that, that that, that's a really good point in, in your experience, is that it's not just surrender to this cosmic, but it's surrender to a person. It's surrender to a person who loves us and always has our and good. Trust and surrender, it, therefore, it, go together. Yeah, exactly. Isn't it also possible that a certain breach can be created in someone else's heart, as Pope Francis puts it, and they see you struggling, you can't read, and they offer to read for you. That to is, suffer alongside. That is possible. You remember perhaps from my paper mm -hmm. that I was hesitant about this. You can offer sometimes, but very often people are too quick in saying, oh, you can offer it up, and right. oh, that's a great chance, and yes. the Lord can yes. do something with it, because they don't have to go through it. Right. Yeah. And I think we have to give people time to find their own response, to find this, this connection to the Lord and this response to the call. But someone else can also read it for you and can give you this, this opportunity to see, oh, there is some light, there is some meaning, yeah. significance, even if someone else is, or if you're not able to see it yourself. And I find at times they, they offer it up, the quick offer it up, it trivializes. It, right. it doesn't allow the individual to weep really with embrace those it. Who weep. Yeah, to embrace it. It, it can be pretty infuriating when, when they glibly remind you, yeah. you know, here's an yes. opportunity to join your sufferings to that suffering of Christ. Like Mother Teresa, I mean, few were as, hero as heroic as she was, and yet she said, you know, this is a kiss from the cross, but I'm going to ask Jesus to stop kissing me. Yeah. It's all right not yes. to want to suffer. Yeah. Now, this is how it's not, it's paradoxical, but it's not contradictory to surrender and fight. Yeah. Because if you're trusting God, if you're loving others, and if you're allowing them to enter into your own pain, there really is a sense in which you're just developing an, an alternative strategy. So you're surrendering to some things, but that's a more effective fight. But I find that just Jesus's agony in the garden, in the heart, I mean, he was ultimately gonna totally surrender to the Father, but there was this wrestling, I think, that he had to go through that ultimately, 
I don't know, makes it more beautiful, if you will. But so stay with us. There's much, much more to discuss on Franciscan University Presents. Let's hear from other voices at Franciscan University of Steubenville. I think one of the biggest ways that I've seen grace at work during my clinicals is watching patients who have hope. One of my professors, he often says that hope is the secret ingredient, and that's really what I've seen in patient care. Whether it's hope for recovery soon or hope of life after death, hope is really what makes the difference for a patient. I have to tell you, in my time in hospital, 39 days in ICU, 71 days in hospital, God was continually present. There were many times that I was alone, but I was never abandoned, and I never felt abandoned by him. On the contrary, he could not have been closer. He was with me at every moment and every step of the way, and I am eternally grateful to him. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We're discussing and learning from illness and suffering. Um, it seems to me that in some ways we live in a world that wants to do away with all sickness, all suffering. It's all bad. Sickness is bad. Death is bad. Suffering is bad. How do you speak to that? So for many people, it's so scary because there is no. There, there seems to be no meaning, no, no hope in suffering, especially in terminal illness. And um, I, I try to give this invitation to look deeper that life is a gift, even though it's fragile, but also even to go a step further that we are given this life by a giver who's God himself and who gave it to us out of love. Yeah, yeah. And does one necessarily have to have faith to understand that, to, to recognize that? Or how, does, how do you bring somebody that doesn't necessarily have faith to that point? So. Um, we talked earlier about, earlier about uh, contingency. I remember a woman, she, she read one of my articles on cosmetic surgery, and she told me that she had suffered for a long time from looking at herself and seeing all these wrinkles. And she told me after she had read the article, she didn't even see them anymore. Mm. And I think it can happen that we as human beings, if we realize um, we are fragile, we are mortal, we can be reconciled with our fragility and our vulnerability. But of course, the final step would be, where, where are we going? Yeah. So is there any hope or will everything be over when we die? That's why I think there is an anthropological approach possible for anyone just to, to be more relaxed with us being humans, having boundaries, having limitations. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Being weak. Being, being weak. Yeah. Who likes that word? No one. I mean, but yeah. weakness is such an, well, that was an the openness great, for grace. Wasn't that the signature of uh, sanctity of the little flower, St. Therese? I mean, she gloried in her smallness, my weakness. I, I need the elevator to get to God. I can't do it on my own. So I throw myself uh, upon uh, upon Jesus, uh, and he'll carry me right into the kingdom. I mean, that's an admission that for some people, it would be a source of, of torment. You, you mean, why can't I be strong? Why can't I be like Prometheus and steal fire? But on the other hand, people are so relieved if they can let go mm -hmm. these ideas. It can, be, it can be so healing for them 
to to be reconciled with their humanity. Yeah. You know, we're in a, a culture that flirts with materialism and ends up embracing a kind of Epicurean hedonism by, nece by necessity. I mean, uh, so you talk about physical suffering, you know, illness and that sort of thing. It's almost as though that is the universal norm of evil. Mm. You know, there is no moral law. And so if we're really kind of unconsciously materialistic in our way of life, then what physical suffering and also emotional travail and all of that, but it's like that's the only thing everybody agrees on must be prevented or stopped. And then euthanasia is justifiable or all kinds of medical procedures. And, and so to discover the spiritual order, even if it's only in my own personhood or in a relationship, but that is a door that opens up to the creator, also to communion, but also to learn from models of people who were ill. In your article, you speak of uh, the German Jewish philosopher, Franz Rosenzweig, who contracted ALS very early mm -hmm. and yet surrendered in a way, but really fought because he worked with his, his, his students, he worked with his wife, he worked with a number of people. Even when he could no longer write or read, he could signal with his eyes and people who knew him, who loved him, you know, and I just, I find that that kind of role model opens up the possibilities for other people who, you know, even if you don't have someone close by who's taught you what it means to go through the school of suffering, to read about someone mm. and to discover that the maturing of his own genius was not in spite of, but the fruit of his suffering. Mm. I think what, what was especially challenging also for, for the others was to be dependent on people. Yes. And it's, it's so hard to be dependent because this is one of our goals in our life, to be autonomous, to be uh, independent, to be free. And, but we are intrinsically relational. We, we, are, we are, as human beings, we depend on others and we need others. And I think this, to admit this is, is a great chance. And Franz Rosenzweig, he was able to continue working because his wife would read from his eyes. <laughs> She read from his eyes, and whenever I ta tell students about his story, I see tears in, in their mm -hmm. eyes because it's so moving that someone would make the suffering, would make the sacrifice, sorry, and on the other hand, for him to allow her to do that and not to, to fall into despair, but to continue working with what he had mm -hmm. and what he still could give. You make a point in the article about the, the whole idea for independence is ultimately leading us to time of isolation, um, sadness, um, aloneness. Maybe speak to that. This, what seems to be a good thing, we want to grow up to be independent, is ultimately separating us from one another. And so sometimes, um, or there is a risk in what I'm saying, and that's why I'm mentioning it first. So the risk is we need people with impairments to, to have a solidary uh, communion or a, a society in which um, everyone would care for the other person. So they cannot become means right, right, right. That's for, right. for our values. But on the other hand, what I really want to emphasize is how necessary it is for us to become more human and to, to live in solidarity, just to be open to, to help and to receive help, to give love, to receive love, to change our society. Yeah. 
because to be dependent on others is something so normal because we're always limited in our jobs, in our physical conditions, in our, in our mental conditions, in our, I don't know, in our intellect. We always need the perspective or the help of others and that is so healthy yeah. to look for it and to see it as an enrichment and not as something that, that comes with a threat. Right, right, right. It's not a threat. Yeah, the, the, uh, the effort the aspiration to somehow achieve a level of perfection that is simply not possible mm -hmm. uh, to fallen human beings, contingent creatures, produces really a kind of nightmare. Uh, it, it produces a, a, a totalitarian state, a concentration camp. Go to a gas chamber because you're not up to scratch. You don't meet the standard of perfection. And so I'm not only impatient with you, I'm determined, I'm intolerant. I want to rid the world of people like you. I mean, Nathaniel Hawthorne, gives us a very instructive and quite prophetic illustration of this in his short story, The Birthmark. The woman has a birthmark, and for most people, it's emblematic of her beauty, but her husband is really upset with it because it mars this perfect, uh, this, this paradigm, this perfect uh, uh, ideal he has of, 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 uh, of facial perfection. She falls short, and he's a scientist, and he's able to uproot it. He says, just give me permission, I'll get rid of it. And he does at the expense of her own life. Yeah. That was the pearl beyond price, and he couldn't bear it. If, we, if we're not fixated uh, on all of these defects, we might be able to see that we're all defective. And that we are a gift for each other. Yes. We are a gift to ourselves, but also for each other, because everyone has something to give. Right. Everyone, we can benefit from everyone, and we can be enriched by everyone. And I think that's a real lesson, especially for us as academics or for us who seem to be independent and strong, it's sometimes so helpful that we need help as well. You know, when you speak of the contingency of our being, the human condition, and likewise the fragility of life or, you know, our own mortality, at the same time, you, you then posit the gift of being. It's like, okay. Yeah, you, you, you have to recognize that just to live, to be, is a gift. Even if you're not certain as to who the giver is, you know that you share this gift with others. And, and so one of my favorite sections of the article is where you're describing how illness becomes a motor, a movement toward a solidarity with other people who are equally contingent, but also a kind of rehumanizing of society that people can relax. I, I had a, a friend in high school who's... Uh, whose father got early onset Alzheimer's before it was really understood in the 70s. And this became her career. But even more, it became the, the, the controlling passion of her life. She had to find the cure. And it nearly broke her, you know, because she didn't want to suffer it. She didn't want to relive what her father went through. And so she wanted not just to be the hero who found the cure, but the one to... And it, and it really drove her out of relationships with her, with her spouse and with other mm -hmm. people as well. And so to recognize illness as an invitation to solidarity with other people who are going to end up being ill, that sort of thing is yeah, really I surprising. Think, I think sometimes what's going through my mind is that it becomes a problem to be overcome rather than a gift to be em embraced. And it's similar to vulnerability in general. So when I started working on vulnerability and the fragility of the human person, I recognized, oh, there are so many areas in our lives that are affected. So, for example, my, my way of teaching has changed ever since. 
for example, in sexual morality, I would focus a lot on vulnerability because even people outside the Catholic Church would admit that if you look at, at intimacy and the vulnerability in intimacy, you would notice that to have a commitment first, hmm. like the Catholic marriage, that would protect the vulnerability the most. So the, the, most, the, the safest space for us as being vulnerable, especially in our love and in our sexuality, would actually be the Catholic marriage. Because you have the commitment first, and then you will live together, and then you have the intimacy. And that's why it became, this entire approach became a turning point for my teaching as well in many areas. Well, it seems to me that for intimacy to work in any relationship, you have to put yourself at risk. You that have is to true. allow yourself to be vulnerable, open, transparent, show who you are. And who you are is riddled with imperfection. Yes, but at the same time, you should not put yourself at so much risk that you really would be destroyed or that you really would be harmed. That's why you have to protect your vulnerability as well. So you should not expose yourself in a way that, that is inappropriate, inappropriate, or that could lead well, to... Well, little children are incredibly yeah. vulnerable, yeah, and true. that invites others, predators, uh, to exploit them. That is true. Yeah. And, and that we mustn't permit. So there is a limit, a line that you draw, and it's governed by reason. Yeah. This leads us ultimately, and, and you mentioned earlier, Regis, to that the death is a reality that everyone is going to have to deal with. But you said that the only way that we can really accept that is to come and understand that there's the hope that there's something better, that the hope that there's something after that. Maybe speak to that. So um, mortality is something we all share, and we can be reconciled with it. We can accept it. We can even embrace it. Some people even think, oh, that's great. When I die, everything is over finally. <laughs> I don't have to struggle anymore. Yeah. So it will just be, I will be sleeping forever. And many people enjoy this as well. But I think we're made for more. Mm. As human beings, we, our, our soul is longing for something greater, something deeper. And that's why faith gives us this perspective of of hope, especially, for example, if you're um, lacking justice, so if you're suffering from injustice, from poverty, it doesn't mean we don't have to help people who are suffering from that anymore. Of course, it's, it's always a call for us to, to mitigate their suffering. But on the other hand, life cannot provide complete justice. And to know there is hope for a different world, there is hope for the full revelation of what we hope or whom we want to see and whom we want to meet, um, this gives or this enriches our lives immensely. Beautiful. Uh, stay with us. There'll be more of Franciscan University Presents. One thing that I often try to think about whenever I'm accompanying a patient is how can I reverence the Christ within this person? A lot of the time that's just in the small everyday tasks of helping them eat or repositioning them or getting them a cup of water. And those things can kind of seem mundane or not as important throughout the day, but really those little opportunities, each one of them is an opportunity to see the Christ within that person and to reverence him within that patient encounter. What if you discovered a university with unmatched science, faculty, and programs? 
a place where you didn't have to choose science over faith. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll find faith-inspired, student-focused, research-driven programs leading to satisfying careers in medicine, scientific research, engineering, computer science, and many more science and health fields. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, education is more than just a word, it's a discovery. Welcome back and thank you for joining us. You're watching Franciscan University Presents, which we record in Communication Arts Studio here at Franciscan University in Steubenville. Our students are operating the cameras and the equipment, and our theology professors, Dr. Regis Martin, Dr. Scott Hahn, and I are, are discussing illness and suffering and what we can learn with them. From Dr. Katerina Vesterhoisman, a theology professor at our study abroad program in Gaming, Austria. Uh, I don't think we mentioned at the beginning that you're actually from Germany. I am from Germany, yes, yes. that is true. So it's I, th I think I'm very German, yes. yes. <laughs> Hopefully in a good sense. Yes, absolutely, absolutely in a beautiful sense. We need good Germans. Yes, we do. Do we? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. <laughs> You're one of them. You're one of them. Yeah. It's a great blessing to have you with us. You. you speak of um, grace as almost as if it's a, like this visita or a visitation of grace in the yeah. midst of illness, yeah. almost as if it comes upon you. So uh, I was reminded of course, of this very famous uh, verse from St. Paul, my grace is sufficient. Um, because in times of weakness, in times of illness, especially if we cannot do a lot, if we cannot achieve, accomplish a lot, it comes like a visitation. It comes like a gift, Some, sometimes very unexpected, sometimes surprising after a time of darkness, after a time of... Mm -hmm no finding any meaning. Yeah. And that can be hard, but to be patient and to receive that gift when it comes, I think, then it, it can make all the difference yeah, yeah, yeah. to find I, the meaning. I, I think of that Pauline injunction that we are to bear one another's burdens, and that sort of implies that you've got a burden that I'm free to offer to shoulder. Let me carry the package which means the weight you had to bear is now diminished because I'm carrying it. That's an invitation to solidarity, to share in this suffering. And that is a kind of visitation of grace. If we didn't suffer at all, then it would be difficult to live with us because we'd be so perfect that we couldn't put up with any, any imperfection. Yeah, I think I was someone like that. So I was just, I think I was just head for many years of my life when I was working in academics, after I had uh, started working in academics, and uh, my life was so quick, so, and I think I, I was somehow successful a little bit, so it was so quick, and after, all of a sudden, my life went down to zero, to, I had to slow down so much. It's such a challenge, but I, I recognize it's a kind of healing you find, mm -hmm. because I realized when Jesus did his mission, when he proclaimed the gospel, he was not running around. He was never in a hurry. <laughs> he had time to talk to everyone. He had time to share, to love, to wait. And I thought, why do I have to be in a hurry all the time? Yeah. And that's why it can be a healing to be slower, sometimes to be weaker. I mean, it's beautiful to be strong and to be efficient. I'm German. I like it. I, I really, I like it. 
But on the other hand, it's so good to, to embrace times when you, when you are not as efficient because it gives you also time to reflect and, and, and it opens the heart for, for other people. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, the, the, the joke is that uh, death is simply nature's way of telling you to slow down. Mm -hmm. uh, and we all need to slow down. I mean, if we carry our death before us, which I think is how Heidegger puts it, then that package is filled with pain and suffering. That's, those are among the bags that we carry. The final cancellation includes a certain down payment. You're going to suffer and then you're going to die. But that invites others, I think, to step in. They feel that breach in the heart the Pope speaks of when he discusses, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That implies there's somebody out there who's eager to comfort you because he too has suffered. Yeah, but on the other hand, sometimes, um, as uh, St. Paul of the Cross said, sometimes suffering comes without consolation. Sometimes it's a way God uses to purify the soul if, if it, within suffering there is no consolation or if it takes a long time until it comes. So on the one hand, we should always offer the comfort we can give, but if it's not provided from the Lord, it may mitigate the, the suffering, but it might not eliminate it. Well, this, I'm sorry, this is too yeah. negative. No, no, right? it's no, true. It's no, true. It's true. It's true. And you know, you quote Paul of the Cross, not many people know him, but he also drew his deepest wisdom from St. Paul. You know, my grace is sufficient, mm -hmm. comes at the uh, end of a section in 2 Corinthians where, you know, he's talking about his, his failings, his persecutions, but above all, the thorn in the flesh, and how he continuously begged God to take it away. Then not only is it the grace sufficient, but there's a sense in which he has discovered the deeper wisdom even still, that his strength is made perfect in my weakness. Now, I was reminded of that uh, recently when I was listening to Arthur Brooks, this professor at Harvard Business School, who is training up all of the future entrepreneurs and he was saying, okay, who is the greatest entrepreneur in history? You know, Henry Ford, Bill Gates, Jeffrey Bezos. No, it's St. Paul, the apostle. And he, he basically introduces people who don't know Paul at all to how it is that you overcome your fear of failure, your fear of weakness, your fear of mortality, and you recognize that God does more with our less. You know, and okay, it's not necessarily an evangelistic message to the students at Harvard Business School, mm -hmm but it's actually a practical lesson that you learn from natural experience. Mm -hmm. And then that could be elevated so that you can see the face of Christ there on the cross reigning in his own death, in his own suffering. But I mean, it's, a, mm -hmm. it's an opening up to the splendor of grace where sin abounds, grace superabounds all the more. Yeah, and it's true because many people wouldn't immediately think that they suffer with Christ. I think I would have thought, how dare I think think that I would, that I'm suffering with Christ, but this helps to think that God really reveals himself still in my suffering. It's well, so well, Father, just before the end of that first session, you plunged us into a pretty deep mystery when you touched on uh, uh, Jesus in the garden, uh, sweating great drops of blood and asking, literally begging the Father, do you think maybe this could be postponed? Do I have to face the cross? But then resigning himself to the, the inscrutable will of the Father. Yes, you have to. You have to march to the very limit of the finite. Talk about contingency. He carried it on his back. It was nailed to him on that cross. 
So we can identify with that because he has already identified with us. It, there's a mutual exchange here. Yeah. We can draw no end of grace from his example. That is true. When I read um, the, the, not the writings because she only dictated, uh, of uh, the French uh, mystic Marthe-Rodin, she suffered her, her whole life. She experienced the, the stigmata and she would experience Christ's suffering every week, Christ's passion. And every Thursday night, she would tell her spiritual director, Father, is it Thursday again? Do I have to go through oh it again? Yeah. I, I can't. I can't. And he would always assure her, you can. You can. With the help of Christ, you can. And I think that is something that is okay. It is okay not to, to want to suffer, but to go through it if necessary. And then to receive the grace to be able to go through it and to survive it um, if it's something that is temporary. Well, it's almost inhuman. I mean, certainly masochistic to say, oh, good, Friday's here. Uh, I can hardly wait uh, to jump into this, uh, this great sea of, of pain. I mean, that, that's, that's, not, that's not human. Mm -hmm. You know, as a Christian, I remember when I was in seminary reading an article that was comparing the death of Socrates and Christ, and Socrates goes to it very heroically. And Christ, the night before, is like, if there's any other way. And he said, Socrates was a philosopher and Christ was a priest. Right, and in that, in that suffering, in that offering to the Father, but I think that that, that is the gift for us is is to be able to encounter God in that. And you said earlier that uh, that God shows Himself in the midst of it. I think, in some ways, in some experiences, it's the only way. It's the only way that He can show Himself in a manner that that is so real and so authentic and so vulnerable that when we're able to find Him there. It changes everything. I think it changes our entire spiritual life. It's really the only experience that teaches us anything about life. Wisdom is something you derive from pain and agony. I mean, Jacques Maritain said, there is this intuition of being, and if you don't have it, you never grow in self-understanding. The intuition of being is life is fragile. It's contingent. We're children of poverty. I, I live, but I move towards death, and I need to accept that maybe even embrace it. This contingency is the sign of my creatureliness. This is how God made me, and I should receive it at least with a kind of joy, a kind of resignation. But it's the intuition of being in Maritain. It's the in intuition of being his gift, first and foremost. Yeah, yeah. And even if you're not sure who the giver is, his name is God. You know, nevertheless, it is a kind of beckoning of the soul to reflect upon it. And if you don't see being as a gift, if you see it only as a burden, you back yeah. into a kind of medical messianism where medicine, the pharmaceuticals, vaccines, and of course, we are grateful to God and to science for all of the cures and all of the research and that sort of thing. But you can, you know, you can make too much of, of medicine. You know, back in the early 70s, Ivan Illich wrote The Limits of Medicine, and it was subtitled Medical Nemesis where medicine can actually be a force of dehumanizing. Mm. And I think we've all experienced a little bit of that in, in certain hospital settings, and certainly during COVID as well, where it was so dehumanizing, this absolute fear that paralyzed us of any suffering and death. Well, here is exhibit A of, of what you're describing. When the Holy Father went to the Gemelli Hospital after the assassination attempt, as soon as he emerged from, uh, from uh, unconsciousness, he summoned the entire medical staff and he reminded them, look, I'm the subject of this. I'm not an object. I'm not a thing. Don't reduce me 
Don't objectify me. I'm really at the center of this drama. Treat me with respect. And sure enough, they did. Good choice. You, maybe, Leslie, you talk about how all, all the suffering, the illness, aging, that it actually can help humanize society. What do you mean by that? So I think we're giving, in those situations, in those conditions, we're giving up our self-defense somehow. Sometimes we're forced to because we cannot defend ourselves against death, for example, against sign of aging. But it helps us also to, to be more, more open to others, more, open, more, more helpful, but not in a way just bowing down to help the others, but just accompanying each other. And that is an improvement in solidarity if charity is not something I, I give with either some money or just from above, but just walking with the other person, slowing down to, to, to their speed and just being with them. And I think that was one of the greatest lessons I, I learned myself and I wanted to, to transmit that um, being accompanied is something so comforting and it changes, it changes society. It changes this, this tendency of we have to get rid of all these limitations. We have to be perfect and um, otherwise we won't be safe. No, we can be safe if we're with each other and if we're um, dedicated to, to helping each other. And isn't that what our Blessed Mother does with Jesus? She accompanies him. I mean, in some ways, I think, for me personally, the diff more difficult suffering, maybe this will change, I don't know, is watching other people suffer mm -hmm. and knowing that there's not a lot I can do. But the mother walks with her son to Calvary and accompanies and just is with him and is present with him, knowing that it's his to bear. There's nothing she can do about it, but she can be with him. Yeah, that's why the vulnerability is not just the vulnerability of the patient, but also of, of family members. Mm that they have like lack of resources, lack of time. It is a financial burden if someone in the family is sick. It, it, it takes a lot of time and, and makes everyone suffer as well. So we, we should be able to relate to that, not just to, to the patient, but also to the entire family or mm -hmm. those who are affected as well, just by not being able to, to do something or to change the situation. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, isn't this really the most astonishing feature uh, about God? He is impassable. He doesn't suffer in himself, but he can certainly suffer in others. And he enters directly, dramatically into that suffering. He becomes a wounded surgeon. Yeah. Yeah. The wounded healer. Mm. A wounded healer. The compassion yeah. of God. He's, he's impassable, but he's not incompassible. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, that yeah. formula. Yeah. And that's so, that's so comforting yeah. to know. He feels my pain. He feels it more deeply than I do. Next, our panel and our guest will share their final thoughts on what we come to have learned through suffering and sickness. Please stay with us. Our Lord says clearly, I am the resurrection and the life, John eleven twenty five, And I could not raise myself three inches let alone raise myself from death. And he did that. And I now have confidence, supreme confidence in heaven because of what he's already done in this life here. There is a place where education begins and faith and reason connect. Franciscan University of Steubenville's online programs will advance your career. 
through an e-learning experience that's both academically excellent and passionately Catholic. With online degrees taught by full-time professors in theology, catechetics, business, education, and other disciplines, you can earn your master's degree online without changing your lifestyle. Find out more today at franciscan.edu, where your faith and career can connect online. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've come to our final segment. Uh, so Regis, if you'd offer your final thoughts. Yeah, I'm really overwhelmed by uh, the eloquence of, of this essay, and I can't thank you enough for, for writing it. And I know it, you drew upon a great and deep school of suffering uh, to produce uh, the insights that, that so dazzle uh, and deepen our appreciation for the redemptive dimension of, of pain and suffering. I'm, I'm reminded of uh, one of the loveliest poems I, I, I ever heard. It was uh, read to me uh, at a mass in Atlanta, Georgia, of all places, on Thanksgiving morning by an Irish priest. It's a poem by Rainer Maria Rilke. I think he's German. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I can't speak for the German, but uh, the translation is really quite moving. And, and a couple of lines uh, stand out. We are all falling, he says. This hand falls, uh, and it is in others. And yet there is one who holds this falling endlessly, gently in his hands. Those lines capture for me the whole predicament of the human condition, the tension between weight, the, the tension between gravity and grace. I mean, there's the upward surge of eros, and then there's the whole weight of Thanatos, and the two come together, they meet at the still point of the turning world, which is Christ, who holds that falling endlessly gently in his hands. We're all tending toward death, dissolution, and yet that movement downward is intercepted, arrested by this upward surge of grace, glory, and God. So the last word is not pain, but paradise. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah. Well, I too want to thank you for the article, and I'm glad that people are going to have access to it. Uh, in rereading it, I was reminded of the deaths of my parents and uh, what it was like to, uh, to reflect upon that, but in the light of Christ, you know, who turns pain into passion and all of that. But um, when my father died, he had been an agnostic up until the time of the diagnosis. And as he was there, and I, I got to be with him in his last hour, and that was... Uh, truly a sacred moment, but it was his, he was German, you know, he was very strong and, and quiet, but the illness broke him. But in the process, it opened him up to redeeming grace, to praying for the first time in his entire mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. And I'm approaching, in a matter of days, the age at which he died. And so my own kids are aware of how much more I'm thinking of my mortality at this age, you know. Uh, but I saw what suffering did in sculpting this great man, my dad, into a little child who learned to trust God at the end of life when he surrendered. And uh, it, was, it was beautiful. Um, I've never stopped thinking about it, but especially was it fruitful to think about it. My mom died just about seven years ago. And uh, it, was, it was similar to my father because the, the, the science of medicine and the doctors just were so sure it was this until it wasn't, and then it was that. And you know, my mom's quip was, 
they don't call it practicing medicine for nothing, you know, because <laughs> they just keep practicing on me, you know. But she also entered at the end into a joy that my sister and I had never seen before, where she let go and she let God take her the contingency of her own being, the gift of her own life, the shared relationships that we were enjoying in a new way at the very end. And so I, I can't help but wonder if people will read this and reflect upon it. I realize it's pitched at an academic level, as it should be from an academic, but I think it can also reach down into the depths of the heart. Mm -hmm. And so I have to say thank you. Yeah, I agree, I agree with that. Katerina, your final thoughts. Yes, yeah, so suffering is always difficult. I don't like to suffer, to be honest. But on the other hand, I remember the relief I felt when I, when I could let go and I could embrace life as it is and how much I appreciated being with others, um, being in a different way with others who were slower, who, who had mm. like more severe sicknesses than I had, just to be with them and to, to see that it can be good not to focus on the pressure all the time, on accomplishments, on what, what is your task, sometimes even what is your call, because I know many, many priests are suffering from this, I have to do everything for the, for the kingdom of God, I have to work all the time. Yes, that is true, but sometimes God is calling us really to slow down, mm -hmm. to let him do, and, and to grow, because those are times of growth when, when we let him um, work in us. And that's usually when we are not working so much or when we are not able to do so much ourselves, then he can really work in us. And I, I think that's very beautiful, very humane, and a way to, to meet grace and to experience mm. grace and uplifting and also a different kind of joy, a deep joy. Yeah. Uh, we, if you would like to learn more about today's topic, we have a free handout for you. That means what it means to be human. The article was written doc by Dr. Bester Hortzman. In, in what we've discussed today, the handout is yours for free simply by going online to faithandreason.com presents or by calling the number we'll provide to you momentarily. Uh, as I was reading your article, I was remembering an occasion I was in Tanzania, actually Kenya, Kenya, and they had brought me, the bishop had brought me to a, a priest who was suffering. I believe actually had ALS. And by the time I, I met him, he was not able to walk anymore. And I was with myself and a bunch of people. And we began to pray for him and just pray that the Lord would heal him. I believe God can heal if, if, if God chooses to. But it became fairly evident to me that, that it, it didn't seem like God was going to heal him. So we just prayed all the louder because that's what you're supposed to do. And, and then I just took a moment and, and I asked the bishop if I could just spend some time with the priest, just he and I. And he began to share his story. And he said that before he got sick, um, mass was basically empty. Nobody would come to confession. Uh, he said his, his preaching was with no power, with no influence. And then he began to talk about how his life had been changed because of the illness. He said, um, mass is full now. And I could hear confessions for five or six hours a day. He said, people said that I'm more empathetic, that I'm more kind, I'm more loving. And I literally found myself praying, Lord, don't heal him, <laughs> right? Which is, but what was happening before his very, before the eyes of his community was he was becoming more human. He was becoming, and, and, and it wasn't just him 
impacting him. It was impacting his community by them watching him and seeing him and seeing how he's being transformed. But my experience says is that's what we want, right? As Christian community, we want, we want to be patient and loving and kind. We just don't want to go through the suffering. Isn't there, there's got to be some other way that we can get there. I'll, I'll pray my rosaries. But the reality is, is oftentimes, maybe not for everybody, but for oftentimes the way that we come to that place is ultimately through suffering and through the pain and through the cross. And I think in the end, when we can begin to find Jesus in that, when we find him there, not just there, but here in my own suffering, my own brokenness, my own vulnerability and weakness, we begin to find him anywhere. Uh, we can find him in baptisms and weddings and beautiful. But in the midst of divorce and illness and infertility and dementia, when we find him there, when we find him on a cross, we can find him anywhere. And I think that's what your article says, is that God is present, that we're not alone, and there's actually meaning to it. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for just those who are watching at this time uh, that are experiencing suffering and difficulty and illness and weakness and brokenness and vulnerability and, and aging. Lord Jesus, just show yourself and reveal yourself to them, that they are not alone, that they are loved, there is purpose and meaning, and there is hope at the end. May Almighty God pour his blessings on you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank Amen. you so much for being with us. Thank you. It was an honor and a great job. Okay. Thank you. Download a free handout on today's topic at faithandreason.com presents. You can also watch past episodes of Franciscan University Presents or request the handout by emailing us at presents at franciscan.edu or reach us by phone for today's handout by calling 800-783-6447. That's 800-783-6447.